Hi guys, welcome to the stream. Tonight, I've got some fellow South Africans with me, some really good guys. I've got uh, Jack, who I'm adding to the stream now. Uh, and we really want to organize for South Africa. We want to uh, organize media. We want to get ideas into the public space. And we want to do it independently without censorship. Today, we'll be discussing the Boer War, especially the genocide of the Boers. And it's my great pleasure to introduce Jack, who will be telling us about who the Boers are. Many of our listeners from Poland may not be familiar with the South African struggle. Uh, they may not know who the Boers are, were. And uh, Jack, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so uh, you have been podcasting yourself, and I, I only got to meet you online a few weeks ago. Yeah, um, I think I've been, I'm not entirely sure. I think it was uh, at the end of 2019, um, I started uh, podcasting um, not with the intention to become like a you know a podcaster but just because I feel that the flow of information from South Africa is um, it's not honest um, uh, and it's not a real reflection of, of what really goes on here and and what people really feel what the what the indigenous people of South Africa really feel and, and when I say indigenous people of South Africa I'm referring to the the Boers the white people you know, because um, if, if you listen to any mainstream source of history or uh, information, then, you know, it, it, they would refer to indigenous people of South Africa as blacks and, and so on. But um, this this country was founded by white Europeans and it was built by white Europeans for white Europeans. Yeah, so uh, many, many people will speak about colonialization and they'll speak about uh, whites going to other countries and setting up uh, new nations there. Um, however, when, when the Dutch arrived in... Cape Town, there were just whole areas of South Africa that were empty. So um, can you maybe oh. tell us about um, the, the Boers and uh, how, okay. for example, uh, they, they didn't want to be subjugated to the British any longer and they moved and they created something unique. They created their own republics. Yeah, okay. So it's a very interesting history. Um, as you know, that um, South Africa was uh, discovered in 1488 by uh, Dasco, Masco, uh, Vasco da Gama, sorry. Um, <clears throat> and then only Almost 200 years later, did somebody for the first time manage um, to settle in South Africa? Vasco did land in uh, in South Africa um, on the east coast, but he eventually uh, drowned when um, his crew got shipwrecked in the Cape of Good Hope, as he, as um, the king of Portugal at that point called it. So um, it was a trading route, and <clears throat> you know, Cape uh, the Cape Colony at that time was just a fort, a fortified trading post. And later on, people started settling here, and there were indigenous people such as the Khoisan, but, you know, they had no settlements. It was all, they were all nomadic people moving from one, they had no claim to a territory. So, you know, they never fought for a piece of, 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 of territory themselves. Whenever they ran into trouble, they just moved on, you know, to a different, so all across, uh, I think, the coastline of South Africa, you'll find, uh, you know, remnants of their uh, little nomadic, what do you call it, uh, Traces. So like rock arts and yeah, like yeah, rock, evidence rock that they were there. Yeah. Evidence that they were there, but they never settled anything. They never built anything. They never like cla laid claim to any uh, piece of land. And uh, also, so the, the 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 white people or the Europeans then started colonializing and settling in the Cape <clears throat> colony, colony, and it started um, you know expanding to the point where they ran into trouble with the the blacks, the Khoisans that they first discovered. I think I'm not. Sure, but it must be something in the 1700s. They discovered the, the causes there at the Fish River. And uh, some skirmishes broke out there. And, uh, you know, so borders started um, uh, manifesting, etc., etc. Um, and there were actually two wars. As you know, at that time, the Dutch and the English 
uh, or the Anglos were in, 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 I think it's the first, it's the Anglo-Dutch war and the second Anglo-Dutch war, if I'm not mistaken. Both of them, um, you know, inevitably this um, settlement trading post got dragged into. And uh, the Dutch actually lost control of uh, Cape, the Cape Colony. And then the, in the second war, they reclaimed the, uh, the Cape Colony. And um, after that, after the East Indian Company didn't function anymore and uh, whatever, the English and the Ger and the Dutch sort of had a, a joint governance in South Africa, right? Uh, or in the Cape Colony at that time, where this incident took place known as Slachtersnack Rebellion. Um, it was a gentleman called uh, Johannes Barnors. Now, Johannes Barnors had a loan dispute, I uh, had a payment dispute with his, uh, uh, with his, uh, how do you say, Hotnot that worked for him on the farm, Hotnot uh, is what they called, uh, in the, the, as they now call them, the koi and the sand, because these people, that you know, <laughs> uh, they didn't have like any identity, which they would say like, we are the koi or the sand people or the whatever. And they had this, uh, they had this song, which they sang uh, around the uh, campfires. And uh, they, they, they would sing stuff, uh, a song that had uh, a verse in it that said Hotnot or something like that. And so the Dutch derived the word Hotnot from it, and they became known as the Hotnot, you know, the, the, the colored people. Yes, that's of, right. Of the game. And uh, so the, one British officer went to this farmer called uh, Johannes Barnos, and uh, that had a, a little bit of a dispute, and he refused to pay, and then they shot him. Um, and his brother then vowed vengeance and justice, and he started an rebellion which led to their imprisonment and they were hung six of him and five of his uh, fellow uh, fighters were hung and at that time it was the law that when the when the rope would break during a hanging you were declared innocent in the eyes of god and man but and on that day five of the ropes broke and the 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 commander then said you know just hang them again what happened then was uh, you know um five of them uh they're the rope snapped and the people, the, the commander then just told them to hang these boars again. And that is what gave way to the birth of the poor nation. You know, it was as what we call it today, the Groot track. So um, Louis Trichard, Hendrik Potgieter, um, and I don't know specifically all the names of the, the tracker fathers, but uh, they decided that they would sell all of their um, belongings inside of uh, the Cape Colony. And they want to live in their own country, free from, you know, the yoke of the old European ways, you know, like uh, the Dutch and the English governance in the Cape Colony. They wanted their own piece of land and they, they wanted to settle it and whatever. And so in 1834, they, they moved uh, in this great track and they settled the greatest part of the South African uh, landscape, which was uninhabited for the most part because, uh, you know, there was just not water. And due to the, uh, you know, Dutch technology of boreholes and uh, like a wind pump is what we call it. They, they managed to uh, inhabit uh, this and, and cultivate the land. And this gave way to four republics. There, there were multiple republics, but the notable ones were the Transvaal, the Natal, Freistaat and Stalaland. So then the Boers lived there and uh, a skirmish broke out between Dungan, which was a, was a Zulu that came down from Africa. And, uh, you know, he, he inhabited Natal. So Natal was actually inhabited by this, by blacks. But then they started attacking the Boers that were, uh, you know, moving through their, through this area. And uh, the Boers went with a treaty to Dangan, and he actually sold them the, the parts that the Boers later inhabited, uh, inhabited of the uh, Natal. Um, there's legal documents where he, where he signed it. And um, 
you know, he betrayed them. He killed 128 uh, Boers execution style. Just going to go briefly over it. And um, the Boers sure. then decided to get together, band together, form a lager. And it is what we celebrate every year on the 16th of December, because in 1838, on the 16th of December, the Boers made a pact with God that should he yes. defend them, help them in their battle, they would honor him and tell their children's children um, and start a, a house, which is, you know, uh, it, it is a... Uh, meaning a people, a home for our people in South Africa. So that was part of the agreement that we had with God. And uh, we defeated the Zulus on that day. Um, and the, the Boers gave the, the, the honor of this victory to their God. So began the birth of the of the Boer, <coughs> the Boer nation, you know. And there's much to say about the genetics and stuff, but that becomes like a, a long conversation, you know, the difference between Afrikaner yeah. and Boer, what it means. There's definitely a difference uh, between that. But, I mean, just in short, yes, these people... Sorry. I'll just say, like, a lot of people who have lived in South Africa, they just, like, think, like, Afrikaner just means, like, uh, all all people of Dutch descent in South Africa, uh, and they think Boer just means farmer. So, uh, even myself, like, I'd lived in South Africa most of my, my life, and I never heard about this distinction until, like, the last two years. So, um, if there are any South Africans listening here, uh, Jack's going to tell us uh, just briefly the difference between Afrikaners and Boers. All right, yeah, that's so, you know, it's interesting because Afrikaner, it, it literally means African, um, if you translate it. And it's, it's, a, it's a very common mistake that people make when they say, you know, I remember as a, as a child, uh, I'd often get into fights with the English, you know, in school. Okay. Yeah, the <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Sotis, the yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, because they would always refer to us as Dutchmen, you know. And growing up in our culture, when your father wants to take the piss at you, they would say, you Dutchman, you know. So you, you'd get really mad if somebody calls you a Dutchman because, you know, we don't identify as Dutch. We actually left the Cape <laughs> for that reason, if, if that makes sense. So the uh, the ethnically the people inhabiting South Africa at that time were known as the Transvaalers. Those that lived in Transvaal were known as Transvaalers. Those that lived in Natal were known as Natalers. Those that, that lived in Freistadt were known as the Freistaters and the Stellalanders. You know, then they were attacked. So I'm I'm going to take a bit of a you know a, a, a journey through this so that you just have an idea of um, how yeah. how this identity developed. So the first Anglo-Boer War um, broke out in I think it was 1880, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, the English were defeated within three months um, of coming to South, of declaring the war and whatnot. And <clears throat> for some reason, I'm not sure, I've not really actually looked into this enough to, to say with confidence what the reason is, but we lost Natal province. And Stalaland, Transvaal, and Freistaat uh, melted together to become known as the Boer Republics of South Africa. That is also why you will hear it's the, it was the Boere. We always refer to ourselves as the Boere, you know, it's the Boer Oerloch. And somewhere along the lines in the new, in the quote-unquote new South Africa, this became, you know, Afrikaners. But yet there were no Afrikaners in the Anglo-Boer War. So, and no Afrikaners in the Boer Republics. So, people that would be born into the Boer Republics would be ethnically known as a Boer, you know? B-O-E-R. And a lot of uh, people that know a lot more than me about the history say this derives from Burgundy, you know, in, in France, if I'm not mistaken, something like that. Um, in, in Afrikaans, it is called Burgundia. So South Africa has got a diverse makeup of European genetics. And people oftentimes think that Dutch is the dominant gene pool in South Africa. And I would, I would risk to say that it's not. I think that the dominant gene pool in South Africa is actually French and then German. And lastly, you know, Dutch and then English, because, uh, you know, and we've even got uh, 
after the Boer War, the Second Boer War, um, we've we got French and uh, we got uh, Ukrainians and Russians and you know Polish and all manner of different in in very small Italians, uh, yeah. yeah, Italians, yes, exactly, yeah, yeah. I mean, Italians, growing up, we knew a couple of Italians and, you know, they would marry your daughters and you would marry them because they were white and we were white. And, you know, because yeah. race mixing in South Africa was always a very big, you know, no, no. It was actually against it was the illegal. Law. Yes, it, it was, was illegal. Manipulation was punishable. Yeah. By imprisonment. Yeah. Yes. By imprisonment. Absolutely. Um, so then uh, we won and the poor republics were established. The second uh, Anglo-Boer War broke out, and this was actually a war that was funded by, uh, that was instigated by Cecil John Rhodes, and he was funded by either the Rockefellers or the Rothschilds. So it was Jews that wanted the diamonds and the gold in South Africa, because the Transvaal province, the Transvaal province in South Africa at that time alone, in its gold reserves, right? Not in the other minerals that it had, but in its gold reserves alone, became the richest country in the world. And you know... <laughs> For 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 the current for the modern, um, what's it monetar, monetary uh, system that we have, these people could not pass that up. They needed that gold to you yeah. know to to build this international globalist Jewish system. Yeah, so th there were certain there were certain people who were very interested in gold. Uh, now the fact is, uh, gold is not such an important material in the sense of like you can't really do that much with it. Like you can produce rings, uh, you may be able to use it for circuitry or something like that. But like the intrinsic value of gold is not that great. It's like a soft metal. It's very beautiful, but like uh, the actual value of uh, a currency of the paper or coins that you use, it's in the trust. Uh, and in history, like for example, it, with the British in the past, they used to have uh, tallyman sticks, I believe, and they were just pieces of wood. So you can have like a whole economy and it doesn't have to like function on gold. Uh, I believe like in, in Babylon, people were using clay tablets as like their money supply. So uh, like what you use for money is almost like arbitrary. There's, there's no like good reason for it. However, uh, in South Africa, there were people who really wanted the gold. And uh, this is um, like the source of all of our problems, basically. Well, listen, my great grandfather, <laughs> we, my family was very extremely, extremely poor. Because we inhabited one of the, 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 you know, the poorest regions in South Africa. And they, um, they found a big jar, like a confite. What's it, like a jam jar? It's like a kilogram of diamonds, right? A kilogram's worth of diamonds. And they threw it out to, um, to as we, we called it in that day, white gold. Now, white gold was water. They threw out the diamonds because they thought this was pretty stones. Obviously, it was not, you know... Uh, I don't even know what the word is, but in any way, like made, uh, whatever. So um, it was not ready to be sold to the market or whatever, but it was still, you know, interesting stones for them, but they threw it away because they thought it had no value, as they correctly thought. It doesn't have value. <laughs> but um, they then threw it out to fill the jug or the jar with water because water was very, very scarce. And uh, later on with the beers coming into the company, the beers coming into South Africa, they began this, I think it's the Oppenheimers that began this slogan, diamonds are a girl's best friend. And from there on, diamonds, <laughs> you know, um, had a worth that was unimaginable. And people started, you know, almost selling their souls in pursuit of diamonds. <laughs> and um, I, I don't know how many other countries it is, but in South Africa, it's actually illegal if you pick up a diamond on your own property and, and you sell it because it doesn't belong to you it belongs to the state after the you know second uh, anglo-boer war and uh, okay so i got a bit of uh, sidetracked there on tangent but 
the the second world yeah. war uh, was concluded and the Boers lost their uh, country. They fought bitterly and bravely to the end, but the um, concentration camps was just, you know, it broke the spirit of the Boers because they would be out there fighting and their women and their children uh, would be thrown in camps and they would be murdered. It's, there's no other way of saying it, you know. The, the British government to this day denies it, but um, I mean, they would throw pieces of broken glass, pieces of metal into the bully beef and into whatever food rations that they did give to them. My one great grandfather um, was very fortunate in having a farm with, with uh, in the mountains, and he actually hid most of his uh, horses and his cattle and my great grandmother and her uh, and their siblings all in this mountain. Well, so your family was fortunate in in this regard. Yes. Well, one part of my family. The other one was uh, other grandfather. He went. He was in a concentration camp himself, or in a labor camp after the war. Um, the youngest child that went with him to that camp was eight years old, you know, and they had to do physical uh, labor. And when the British dropped him off at the harbor, they left them in a, in a other country, in a harbor in another country. And my grandfather had to start making with his pocket knife, which was the only, um, other than his clothes, only uh, thing that he possessed at that time. He would pick up driftwood and he would make little things to sell with the driftwood to buy a train ticket to get back home to the Transvaal. <laughs> So those were very tough times and you know my other my dad's part of the family they fought in the 1914 rebellion when the uh, because in that time you know not everybody was all uh, in certain areas you know they were late to the war and stuff like that so they joined only in the rebellion and uh, it, it was a very hard time for for the boers you know and as rudy Rousseau would tell you uh, his research that he did recently indicates that the numbers much closer to 37,000 uh, women and children that were murdered in those camps. Yes, yes. Um, Rudy Rousseau hopefully will be a guest with us in the future. So uh, we will be discussing uh, South African history and politics in the future. And uh, yeah, Rudy makes uh, the, the statement that uh, in South Africa, especially he, he says the Afrikaners uh, are responsible for hiding the fact of the numbers of the camps. And he said in some cases, uh, they, they haven't even uh, named some of the historical camps. And uh, God bless uh, Rudy, because he has been going, searching for the camps and documenting it. So uh, Rudy's like a top guy. Hopefully we'll have him on in the future. He's like an expert on, on this topic. I, I love Rudy. I love his spirit. You know, he's, <laughs> he's a great guy. He's, he's a lovely man. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. He's got a very deep love for his people. But, you know, when they refer to the Cape Dutch Afrikaners, is what they call them, they're actually referring um, I don't know if they know it, but, you know, by means of association, people that are either ethnically or, uh, you know, in a friendly capacity with <laughs> a certain people. I don't know if I'm supposed to say them. Uh, they, I, I, I don't I don't believe like you can say that that name. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so we're on YouTube, so we, we can't. Yeah. <laughs> we, so for we that have to reason. be like Jordan Peterson. Yeah. Uh, I can't <laughs> do it. I, I can't <laughs> do it. <laughs> Yeah, but if anybody that knows who we're referring to, you know, these people aren't, if, uh, you know, it's like um, the Bruderbund was uh, founded as a way to, to my knowledge, to help white people regain, uh, or the, the Boers regain their country uh, with a political party. This Bruderbund was later on hijacked, and it's today called the Afrikanerbund. And the Afrikanerbund is what actually sold out South Africa. When Henry Kitchener came here in the 60s, he visited, or early 70s, he visited John Foster. And South Africa, without having needed to make a loan, even amidst international sanctions, we didn't need a loan, but then we made a loan to, the inter uh, to America. And um, that was the first part of, you know, the, uh, 
how do you say crumbling of of South Africa and and our heritage in in South Africa, our claim to the land. Later on, after for, uh, uh, John Fosser, Evie de Klerk came in and he started this whole thing with Rolf Meyer, where they you know they gave our land to the ANC. And this yes, specific uh, yeah, like, this is this is a matter that many white South Africans. Uh, who are young and don't understand like why they're in this position uh, need to look into and hopefully in the future this is another topic that we will be discussing is the betrayal of the national party especially towards the, the end of that party's life yeah absolutely we have to understand that you know um, the first time that something such as secession was discussed in South Africa was in um, in 1970 and I mean I can't disclose uh, for obvious reasons how I know this information but um, this was the first time that the clerk and these people started entertaining the idea. And the reason for that was they knew that this union, this new South Africa, as they call it, uh, the union between white, black and any, anything, um, is, it's, it's not going to work. And in the future, they will need a backup plan. And then this backup plan is called secession. Now, white people, because we do not know our history in South Africa, we are, you know, we revert to thinking, oh, this is a great idea. We can be away from blacks but secession will include everybody that is considered a minority in according to the geneva convention and all of that nonsense and the truth of the matter is even though south, the boers in south africa are um numerically less than the blacks we are not at per, as per the definition of the un uh, and the geneva convention a minority the greatest land the greater ma land mass of south africa belongs to the boer people we do not need to lay claim to it. It legally belongs to us. There is enough documentation to support the claim. There is historical evidence to support this. I mean, this these international bankers, let's call them that, they brought in black laborers after the, for, for, uh, the Second Boer War to replace the Boers um, in the mining companies. And this gave way to the massive, massive um, black population that you see in South Africa today. These blacks aren't even indigenous to South Africa. And a lot of people, you know, because what do you see? You, gr you grow up and you see black people around you and then you assume automatically and you are taught in school that um, these people are, uh, how do you say, indigenous to this land. But they are not. They are invaders. We are the rightful owners of this land. And now the blacks, like Julius Malema, which is also funded by these international bankers, constantly say, we are the rightful owners of the land. You're not the rightful owners of anything. You've never cultivated, built or anything in, <clears throat> in this country, you know? So uh, it's not yours. You have no claim to it. This is the white man's land. And it's something that is never said, but it needs to be said. And more importantly, it needs to be studied and understood because that is the truth. You know, in South Africa, used to be a 100% uh, racially white homogenous society just like Europe but because these people came in nowadays we're the we're debating whether or not whose land is this really blah 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 and you've got the supposed right-winger politician in South Africa saying that the blacks need to explain how they stole the land from the Khoisan in what world in what conceivable world is could that be constituted as a leader that would sell his people's birthright out with a claim like that, you know, it is the yeah. exact same thing. If I go to Europe now and uh, Muhammad bloody Khan or whatever that is born in Sweden says, well, you know, I'm a third generation Swede. You're not because land mass is not what determines the people. Genetics is. But 
we as the Boer people, we as people that build civilizations, form an intricate bond with our, um, uh, how do you say, this landmass. And uh, uh, phrases such as blood and grond, blood and soil, uh, just solidifies that. You know? <laughs> Yeah, so you make a very uh, passionate claim there, and I, I wish uh, more young South Africans uh, would know that they do have a history, they have their own country, but it's been taken away from them. And uh, do we have grievances? Yes, we have grievances. Absolutely. I, mean, I would argue to say that we are the only ones with legitimate grievances in South Africa. The other people are secondary, have secondary grievances, you know, and they'll make you f focus on that. They're like, well, what about the blacks? Well, they weren't supposed to be here in the first place. Now you've come and dealt me a problem that now I have to solve, you know? And it's, it's not my problem. These blacks, they don't belong here and they have no claim to it. So anything that happens going forward to them should not be my fault. You know, my responsibility and our responsibility as Boers in South Africa lies solely with the preservation of the Boer people and the expansion of our people. Not only the preservation, but the prosperity of the Boer people, which is severely undermined as it is in today's terms, because we have been robbed from our land and we have been robbed, more importantly, from our identity. And, you know, they make history this extremely mundane thing and nobody takes interest to it because it's just a bunch of dates and they don't tell you the story, the spirit of the time behind why did we come here, what did we do, and what, what it means to be a white man. What does that mean? What does it encompass? And if that is how history is taught to our people, then they would gravitate towards it. Because all of us, if you look at, you know, um, fiction and fables, what does it always tell? It tells a story of sacrifice, of selflessness, of heroism, you know? And now it's all confined to some Hollywood uh, nonsense movies that aren't even conceivably true, you know? And it's not from the mind of the white man. None of these stories are from the minds of the white men anymore. And that is why our people are so directionless. And this directionlessness leads us inevitably towards self-hate. Because, I mean, think about yourself. You start exercising, you start working on yourself. What do you do? You start loving yourself. But if you uh, go out and eat more, uh, eat too much, uh, become, you know, uh, morally uh, reprehensible, what do you do? You're going to start hating yourself. And it's uh, whichever one of those things that you feed it's, it's what's going to grow and unfortunately in our societies whether it be european or um uh, boer or american at this stage we suffer from uh hopelessness and self-loathing yes. yes absolutely uh, i think like the experience of south africa is very important for other white nations to look at and say look uh this is where whites are in south africa now uh, our demographics in our own european countries are changing very rapidly and i'm specifically speaking about uh western europe like england france germany the netherlands like, th these countries are changing and uh, i think uh europeans can look at uh, whites in south africa and they can see uh how terrible uh the experience is how limited your freedom is how you can never be left alone how you cannot be safe where you are. So um, there is a, a lot of things that uh, South Africans should learn about their history and their political situation. But uh, South Africa is also um, almost like a canary in the coal mine. Uh, let, let's hope uh, we, we don't um, uh, get snuffed out. But uh, the, the thing is, uh, the situation is uh, getting worse. Absolutely. It's a precursor to Europe. And, you know, I think it, all comes, yeah. it, it, it comes from the point where there is no leadership. I do not know of one person in South Africa that accurately represents the Boer people you know, on a public platform. None. There is no. There's no organization. No. Forget about it. You, you name any single one that you can think of. And I tell you, 
No, forget about it. They do not represent the rightful claim of the world people in South Africa. And even people speaking about, you know, the demographics of Europe. It shouldn't be, the, the question shouldn't be the demographics of Europe. It should be, Europe is being invaded. Invaded. Each and every non-European person born in Europe is an invader. It is nothing short of that. And, you know, um, naming it anything short or calling it something, anything other than that, leads us to uh, a lackluster response to a very, very yes. serious problem. I think you've put your finger on something extremely pressing, is that we don't actually have representation. Uh, why, why, when, for example, in the UK, people vote for the Conservative Party who promise they, they will uh, end immigration, do they not get to the end of immigration? Why, when Americans, uh, white voters there, vote for Trump, who promises them a wall, who promises he's going to deport them all, uh, why do they not get it? Uh, we have fake leaders. We do not have people who represent us. They only speak to your desires when there is something that can be taken away from you. And in this hope, you know, you could be fooled and lulled into thinking that it's your money or whatever that they want to take away from you. But it's not. It's your hope. These leaders are there to steal your hope, you know, because a lot of us, a lot of white people see themselves as collective. When Donald Trump won the election in America, white people across the world were elated. Exactly. Were yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Why is that? Why is that? Because we, I see the American as my brother. And, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't harbor any ill will to any other white ethnicity as long as we can work together to the same goal. And that is taking back that which belongs to us. And as you so rightfully said, you know, they promise us, they make false promises. But I've never heard any politician speaking to the spirit of the white man, speaking to what white people feel. You know, I was talking to one of my friends these other, the other day and I said, I have no I don't care what people think, what white people think at this point, because the majority of us aren't thinking authentically white thoughts, because what enters your mind in the modern age is all propaganda. Therefore, you've become regurgitating all of these propaganda that is constantly forced upon you. So it matters not what people think. A lot of people's response to what I'm saying would be, but you're a racist. But that's a reflect. That's a reflective response. It's not an emotional response. And emotions is what sprouts from your spirit, man. It's what sprouts from your heart. And I'm telling you, these people, it doesn't matter how far, but deep down inside, they feel the inherent same way. Because if they didn't feel the same way, then they wouldn't have had less children. I see this in South Africa. The majority of the youth have less children because they have no hope. When they leave the country because they want to leave the country to go start a family outside of South Africa because they don't see a future for themselves in South Africa. And what we need is somebody to inspire hope again, to say, listen, it might take hard work. It might take sacrifice, but this is ours. Nobody's going to take it any longer. This belongs to us and we will reclaim it. Yeah, so I think you, you make a very good point there. Uh, white South Africans, they, they feel that they're not represented, and they aren't, and the people who put themselves forward as representatives are not representatives, and they don't feel that they can get married, uh, have kids, and uh, live a good life in South Africa, and it's terrible. Like, our hope has been taken away. And what I can point out on the other side is, uh, if you look at all other non-white countries, there, people are allowed to have nationalism. Okay, if you go to China, is China going to accept like all the other groups? Uh, no. What do they do with their groups? They put them in camps. Okay, so uh, like it's China first. Uh, they're very nationalistic besides being a communist country. Same, same with India. Uh, they've got uh, strong borders. Uh, in places like uh, Bangladesh, when people try to cross the river into India, they get mowed down. <laughs> like they, they do 
not tolerate immigrants coming into the country unless it's through legal means. But anyway, it's very difficult uh, in a lot of other countries to get your uh, citizenship. And I'll give you the example of Saudi Arabia. In Saudi Arabia, there is no path to citizenship for a foreigner. Okay, there is no way you can ever become a Saudi. So uh, you can you can move to the country, you can get a working visa, you can live there 70 years of your life, and you still will not become a citizen of Saudi Arabia because you were not born there. So again, uh, nationalism exists for other people, for other races, but for white people it is denied, and it's denied us by our own elites, and we have to do something about this. Yeah, because these are the traitors. It's 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 an ancient story, you know. It's 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 not a it's not it's not anything new. It's it's actually, but uh, all of our all of our these leaders that we have now, supposedly, what do they do? They work towards the same goal, which is an international community, a global world, a globally connected world, and the abolishment of borders, the abolishment of national identity, and the abolishment of national pride. And that's why they really use the slogan racist, because they don't want you to take pride in who you are. They don't want you to take pride in, in your identity. And your leaders are working with these people in deconstructing your identity. Therefore, the very first step is to acknowledge that we do not have leaders uh, in the public sphere. Jack, Jack, I think you, it was a lovely chatting to you about uh, the Boers. Are we going to dig a little bit deeper into the specific case of the genocide of the Boers? Um, can you maybe just tell us uh, lastly about like the streams that you do? I'm definitely planning. I'm, I'm in two minds about, you know, um, the way forward, but uh, the streams that I do in my personal capacity are for the most, not for the most part, but they are all impromptu streams. But uh, other than that, I stream with Southern Dingo uh, on the Southern AF podcast. Um, I've taken a break from streaming. This is my, is this my return from my hiatus? I don't know, but I've taken a, a break from streaming for a couple of weeks or, or whatnot. I'm not even sure, but um, people can find us on DLive, um, Southern Dingo, um, and on YouTube, it's also Southern Dingo. And then my uh, personal YouTube is just Boorjack. And 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 um, I think it's Boor Rebel on, on Twitter. I'm not sure. <laughs> and mention your Telegram channel, Jack. Oh, yeah. And I've got a Telegram channel. It's called Art uh, Boorjack Art for Naboo. <laughs> so. Yeah, um, if any of the guys uh, on the stream want to add it in our private chat, I can uh, put a banner up for it so uh, we can link people to Jack's social media. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me, Brian. It's been a pleasure uh, chatting with you. Sorry if I rambled a bit tonight, but you know, it's, it's, it's been a while. Yeah, Jack, Jack wants us to buy a lift for you. <laughs> buy a donkey. Absolutely. You have a good, good evening, my friend. Thank you very much, Jack. Good awesome. to have you back, Jack. Cheers, cheers, boys. So, uh, folks, it's wonderful to hear from a guy like Boer Jack, uh, who's passionate about his people, who know that uh, South Africans have a long and complicated history and that we don't uh, have to have it pissed away by people who do not represent us. Um, I've got some guys, I don't really know how to refer to them, uh, like the Wolf Pack, the Mopoho pride of lions who, who tear things apart. Uh, guys, uh, welcome to the chat. So uh, maybe we could put things like into context like a little bit. So um, when the republics were established, uh, you had the British doing lots of annexation. You know, what Bruegel was touching on is extremely important to understand. That the fact is, uh, the two republics uh, were not very developed. They were mostly agricultural uh, areas, especially the Orange Free State. Most of the people were just farmers there. And even in the Transvaal, most of the people were farmers. Uh, however, after gold was discovered, you suddenly have the establishment of centers of mining. You've got towns developing, you've got areas for workers, you've got traders, you've got people setting up uh, liquor houses, uh, prostitution houses, um, and basically the people who do this are not 
they're not birds, okay? They're, they're all foreigners. And what type of foreigners? Um, they're called Aitlanders. Uh, this is, some of them were English, uh, but the large majority of people in a place like Johannesburg were from Eastern Europe, either uh, Polish Jews, Russian Jews, uh, and especially uh, German Jews, uh, Lithuanians. And these people uh, begin setting up their own business, own businesses. And uh, very soon you've got their interest, their interests, coming into conflict with the, the people who were there before them, the Boers. Uh, as Jack was telling us about the, the Boers, okay, Taurus just joined. The Boers moved away, they set up their independent states, and uh, then you had uh, the British encroaching on all different areas. So you had like the annexation of Natal. Uh, as soon as the Boers, uh, as soon as there was diamonds discovered in a place like Kimberley, uh, you had the British uh, annexing that and taking that away from uh, the Boers. There was a, there was an area uh, to the east of the Boer republics, and the British again they annexed British Buchanaland. And I think it was the British strategy basically to stop the Boer republics from reaching either the west or the east coast, so that they would have access to the ports. In South African history, uh, people may argue what was the reason for the war? Was it uh, just British imperialism or was it something else? And all the evidence that we have is that as soon as gold was discovered, this caused the problems. Yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely a, a Zionist war. It was a Rothschild's war. Yeah, so I've got um, a little bit of a quote here, and this is uh, specifically about Johannesburg. Okay, so uh, th this is uh, from the book by Hobson. He was an eyewitness to Johannesburg. And in 1899, he wrote this in his book, The War in South Africa, Its Causes and Effects. And uh, he, he spent lots of time in different areas in Transvaal and the Free State, and especially in Johannesburg. And he said, so far as wealth and power and even numbers are concerned, Johannesburg is essentially a Jewish town. And uh, do you think these people were working as the common laborers? Yeah, definitely not. Uh, they not built for, for labor. Uh, they built for banking, and subverting, but not labor. So uh, again, when we look at places like Transvaal, one of the reasons we have such a, a large black community in those areas is because of the international mining system, basically. Yeah, I think Jack uh, touched on it earlier when um, he said labor was imported imported and they were imported uh this carried on right through the 30s the 40s 50s 60s 70s we still get it now um with uh, black labor being imported onto mines during apartheid era um people were actually crossing the border we had to we had to beef up our borders because apartheid was such a horrible system these people were coming over to to be oppressed and work in the mines isn't that interesting just like uh the people are oppressed today and they're going to uh, the white supremacist United States of America. Yeah, 100%. We, we, see, it in, we see it in Europe, we see it in the US. Um, all these people just cannot wait to be oppressed. So uh, they pack their bags and go to the most um, racist, white supremacist countries they can. Uh, there's yeah. definitely some characters. Yes, go ahead. Well, I'm just, uh, I was just saying, uh, moving back to the mines, um, it, it was also after the, uh, the Second Freedom War or the Second Anglo-Boer War where they specifically had uh, policies of not hiring um, Boers or Afrikaner people. So they had to import people, um, cheap black labor. The, the mines uh, have consistently caused problems for South Africa. And um, I, I'm not sure what the state status of South African mines is today, but I, man I imagine that a company like De, Beer, uh, De Beers, uh, it's, it's not owned by South Africa. It's probably not being taxed. It's not being taxed in the way uh, which could actually fund 
um, South Africa in, in, a, in a positive way. So um, I know that with Hendrik Vervoort, before he was uh, assassinated, he was looking into, he was doing an audit. He had like a whole program of auditing the the mining companies in South Africa. And um, then just, just by accident, he was uh, assassinated. Yeah, well, if you, I mean, if you're asking about the, the current situation of mines in South Africa, you only have to look at Anglo Anglo Gold or Anglo American. Um, they were founded in 1917 by Oppenheimer, Ernest Oppenheimer, gold mining company. Um, so they've been around for you know quite a while, and uh, they sold off their last bit of uh, last bit of shares, last bit of assets in the country, and uh, concluded. I think it was a 4.4 billion dollar transaction with uh, Harmony Harmony Mines, and uh, got out of the country. Um, a lot of other large multinational companies are exiting the country due to load shedding um, and regularity uncertainty. Uh, talk about um, you know getting the land back, so it's it's a push um, that they're not willing to you know the the juice is not worth the squeeze according to these people, which we've seen them do throughout the world. Um, they've come in, they've taken what they wanted, and they're leaving. Uh, there's uh, I think it's not only when they talk about regularity, uh, regulations and being uncertain of the new regulations coming into the mining sector, uh, you have to look at affirmative action, you have to look at uh, broad-based economic empowerment. Uh, these all play a role in, uh, in, in their decision to leave. So yeah, mining is not looking too good. So, so um, if we look at uh, like just the run-up to the Anglo-Boer War, you've got uh, the Brits annexing lands of the Boers and then you've got the Jamison raid. So uh, you've got essentially, like I, I believe it's reported, something like 600 uh, policemen from from one of the colonies north of the Transvaal trying to march into Transvaal and actually take the territory. So um, again, who was the aggressor in in the build-up to the war? It wasn't the Boers. And actually, what's very interesting is that people who have focused on the military spending of the Boer republics note that before the Jamison raid, there was no real offensive weapons bought. Like all, all the weapons were basically like rifles. Um, so they weren't buying uh, artillery pieces. And basically in 1896, you see a massive development of uh, Boers beginning to buy hardware. So they, they're beginning to buy artillery pieces like the, the big Krups cannon and stuff like that. And uh, the Boers do change their policy. They, they're, becoming, they're setting up their military to be more offensive than uh, just riflemen, people having rifles. Of course, in the the beginning of the war, the, the British are losing. They're engaging the Boers, and they're losing most of the time. However, the British Empire is massive. The Boer republics are very tiny, and the British calls on her allies. So you've got Australia, you've got Canada, you've got New Zealand, and all of these countries are sending troops to South Africa. And uh, by the end of the war, I believe there are something like 250,000 British troops in South Africa. And you've only got like a, a small fraction of Boers who are trying to deal with this. And at the beginning, the Boers are very successful. However, uh, when the British find that they cannot break the Boers, uh, they change their tactics. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, just going back onto a point that you that you brought up there, it was it wasn't only the English; it was a, a concerted effort on behalf of the Commonwealth. You did have Canadians, um, Australians. Uh, I think there was even some some Indians, probably Pakistanis. Anything that was touched by uh, by um, the British, um, there there were a few people. Yeah, but having said that, uh, on the Boer side, there were a lot of uh, uh, Germans, Scandinavians, uh, French. There were Russians, Ukrainians that came over to fight on the Boer side. 
Yeah, so uh, this this is one of the one of the nice things that we can say about the war is that uh, you did have whites in other countries who saw the mistreatment of the Boers and they, they got involved on behalf of the Boers. Um, yeah, Jack was mentioning we should not have brother wars. Uh, he was saying this in the private chat before, and um, definitely uh, when it comes to uh, international bankers and miners, um, we we should not put our interests uh, behind their interests. Uh, we should be able to uh, work together with other people who are doing good things for whites. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we've we've come far enough along to uh, to understand that um, you know those those wars are. Uh, for elites, they only serve the purpose of, or serve the interests of one group, and that's definitely not white people. Yes, absolutely. So, um, yes, the British begin changing their tactics, um, and uh, instead of uh, focusing on military defeats, uh, because they, they can't do it, uh, they begin going around to uh, the farms. Now, uh, the, the Boers also had to change their tactics when uh, British military power had increased so much. I believe uh, General Cronier was he had to surrender. He was uh, caught with his wagon wagon train, and uh, after after that surrender, the Boers really changed their tactic, and they they changed to guerrilla warfare. And then the British, uh, because they couldn't beat the guerrillas, they started going to the farms, burning down the farms, uh, yeah, burning the food stocks, uh, slaughtering the animals. Uh, apparently, on the high field during that time, there wasn't very much wood. So, uh, if people have, for example, a piano that they had imported from Europe, uh, the British were using these as firewood. They were using their books from the library as firewood. And uh, then, because of these actions, because of like displacing poor women and children, now you've got um, thousands of civilians on the fields, uh, on the on the felt. Yeah, um, it was uh, the Boers conducted guerrilla warfare. Um, they were very good at hunting. Um, they had been, they had trekked from, from the Cape right up into the high felt. Uh, and with those treks, you obviously, you pay your school fees. So you become accustomed to your territory. Um, you learn how to hunt. Uh, there's a saying, uh, so a boer and his gun, um, you know, never, never, never far away. Uh, it was a very successful guerrilla campaign. And the only way the British could have any kind of uh, chance at quelling the rebellion or putting an end to it was taking women and children uh, when they did take the women and children, they would, like you said, burn down, um, burn down farms, burn down the houses, uh, killed animals, and then move them into camps. Uh, a lot of these camps, um, especially ones in uh, the Free State, um, they were put into small tents. Um, the tents weren't sufficient; they were overcrowded, and uh, there were a lot of deaths um, through disease, um, malnutrition, um, children being born into the camps and passing and, and dying. As well as uh, from from the cold, um, especially oh, the winters, yeah. half of the winters. Yeah, so I, I think there was a quote where where one of the um, where it was it was I'm not sure if it was official policy or if a policy that just was un, unsaid, but uh, that none of the children under five should make it out of the camps. Yes, so um, I, I believe it's something like thirty thousand farms were were burnt in total. And I believe that there were even some towns that were completely razed. Uh, so like there was nothing left except maybe the church. Sometimes like they did burn churches as well, but Boers uh, is an interesting term. I really think that uh, Goodson did like a good job like in using this term. Um, it does seem like a little bit uh, hyperbolic um, in the sense that uh, was it the, the express intention for them to, to begin uh, cleansing 
the Boers. And uh, I don't think that you can make that argument. However, um, they, they certainly knew that putting people in camps was going to end up with civilians dying. What is interesting is that uh, a lot of people say that uh, when the Spanish were subduing the, the Cubans, they also set up camps. And apparently something like f almost half a million people were in camps and something like 100,000 of the Cubans or roughly 100,000 Cubans died in these camps. So before the British did it in South Africa, the Spanish were doing it in uh, Cuba. And of course, like uh, we already understood what germ theory was during that, that period of time. And the British knew that if you're going to just like put people uh, in camps, if you're going to destroy their, their food stocks, if you're going to destroy their houses, you're, you're basically giving them a death sentence. It's not like um, ISIS uh, lining up people and slitting their throats. It's not that sort of genocide, but uh, it is certainly a slaughter of the Boers. So oh, what do you think about the title of uh, Goodson's book? It's, it's apt. I think it's a good title. Um, we often refer to it as uh, genocide happening to white people in South Africa, and we, we run up against the, the adage of where are the bodies? And uh, quite clearly there were bodies there. Um, it was a it was a planned it was a planned genocide it was specifically done to break the will of the poor people yes so uh, here we have some images folks uh, here for example are uh, wagons so uh, here for example is a piano uh, like i said um, wood was uh, very scarce on the felt and uh, the, the british uh, would um, use uh, the Afri the Boers' livestock to, to drive them to the camps. If Apparently there are reports if the cattle perished on the way. Actually, Boer women and children were expected to carry the wagons uh, to the camps. So uh, this is uh, absolutely humiliating. Um, here we have some more pictures of uh, Boer farms being burnt down. And what really doesn't make sense to me is like, why burn the food? Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I think we know why they burnt the food. Um... Yeah, th there is the claim by the British that uh, Boers, Boers were using the farms as a uh, military basis. Now, the, the fact is, the Boers didn't really have like a, a proper military. They, they had men who would uh, give their loyalty to the local commander, but for, for most part, it wasn't like a, a professional army like Napoleon had. It, it was just settlers, uh, basically farmers, uh, who were fighting the British. So uh, to say that they were going back to their military bases is just not true. They were civilian homes. And um, Goodson does point out in the book that the British had signed up to uh, Hague regulations stating that they uh, wouldn't take actions against civilians. So, uh, And th the fact is, Britain didn't keep their own word of honor. Yeah, um, again, it's uh, who decides who's a civilian or not. If you say that, that's a concentrated attempt uh, and you paint everyone with the same brush, then you can go after everyone. So that's, that, that falls by the wayside. It's, it is war. So <laughs> all bets are kind of off. Um, there, were, there was not a concerted effort from the Boers with regards uh, a, a standing army, as, as we would see with the British. Um, they were extremely successful using guerrilla tactics. So no need to veer away from that. That's why they came, so, they came down so hard on women, children, and the elderly. Here, by the way, is like a field of lambs um, or sheep that have been slaughtered. And uh, here, like it says, uh, five uh, church in Carolina, Eastern Transvaal, destroyed by soldiers. So uh, again, uh, a Christian nation, Christian nation, burning churches of Boers. Yeah. Uh, here's a picture of, of the Hague. So um, here, uh, Britain agreed that uh, they would respect uh, civilians and that they uh, would not include them in the war effort, uh, but they lied. Hey guys, just something I'd like to point out here that I think it's important yeah. that we need to make the distinction here between the British and um, 
the dispatched officers of the people who were in control of what was actually going on in South Africa at the time, namely Kitchener. Um, I think it even states in the book that some of the British generals um, couldn't really go forward with what they were essentially instructed to do um, because, you know, they could see that what they were doing was uh, barbaric beyond words. So I think that a large portion of the blame here needs to be put at the feet of Kitchener because um, being the head of the, the operation at the time, I think uh, the majority of the blame needs to go there rather than the British as in, you know, the entire wide sweep of the entire British government at the time. Not that they're completely innocent, of course, but I think, uh, like I say, the majority of the blame needs to be pinned on Kitchener specifically. Okay, so uh, this is certainly true. Like when we consider the military actions uh, of individual soldiers, uh, it's hard to lay blame uh, against those individual soldiers because those people have already made their pledge to their own countries. Um, however, when we look at the leadership, that's uh, where we can uh, begin to, to look at uh, people like Chamberlain, uh, we can begin looking at C Cecil Rhodes. I think Taurus, Taurus joining us again. Was there, uh, you were talking about The Hague there just before I started speaking. What was the, was there any official government response, the British government response um, at the time? What was what was their, re their, their reaction to the news of what was actually transpiring? I believe Kitchener and Milner, um, they were reporting on what was happening at the camps. Uh, it's reported that Kitchener never actually entered any of the camps. And uh, Kitchener, uh, when he was getting a lot of heat, uh, because, like, for example, Hobhouse went into the camps and began reporting what she had seen, like the terror of the camps, uh, he, he, he had the audacity to claim that the Boer women were unhygienic, that they were not looking after their children, and that uh, they should be charged for uh, infanticide. So uh, that, that's how uh, Kitchener responded. And I also believe that um, the, the British did put out uh, an investigation of what was happening in the camps. But uh, again, like they, they wouldn't lay blame on their policy of purposely burning down Boer houses, destroying livestock, destroying foods. Yeah, uh, they do not take responsibility for that. Okay, thanks for that. I think it was Tara who was mentioning the cold. So, uh, so some some people who live in Transvaal already know how cold it can get in wintertime. I remember sometimes uh, it could be like minus five in winter. Here's a picture of uh, some Boers in a camp. Um, they are, it looks like they're throwing snowballs, to be honest, um, in the mud. But uh, you can see like here are tents in the background. Um, is this a suitable place for women and children to be sleeping uh, on the snow, um, especially when they're not getting good uh, food rations? Um, is, is it very easy to be hygienic when uh, there isn't any concrete and everything's just slop and mud and slosh? Oh, yeah, uh, apologies for that <laughs> farm internet. Um, you were talking about Emily Hobas, and uh, I mean, she was quoted as saying, uh, I call this camp system wholesale cruelty to keep these camps going is murder to the children. Um, when she left South Africa, she did go back to England and did campaign on behalf of uh, the Boers, the women and children, and the closing of the camps. Um, I'm not quite sure of the the time that she was there till the end of the war, but uh, a lot of people look at her with uh, great fondness. Yes. So, so again, uh, you mentioned that uh, some other whites, uh, for example, from Ireland, from Russia, from Germany, like they came to South Africa to fight on the side of the Boers, and a person like. Hobhouse uh, was was a very kind-hearted woman who who was crucial in getting out the story of the the camps. Like, had it not been for her, um, how how much of this would be known today? Yeah, uh, I I think I think we probably would have known quite a bit. But uh, I think she was instrumental in shedding light on it at that time. You know, there's anything leaving the country with regards uh, the the English side obviously would be heavily censored and redacted. Um, 
stuff leaving from the worst side via Germany, France, Holland. Uh, obviously, that would, that would show a different story. Again, here are some pictures of of women and children from the camps uh, with their children. Oh, well, it, it is uh, really emotional to see something like this. Yeah, interesting choice of words, Holocaust. If you actually look at what the word, word really means, um, it means burnt offering. And contrary to what people <laughs> believe, according to the official tale, you know, um, the of the of the actual you know <laughs> Holocaust itself. Yeah, there was no burning because you know that's another subject. But I'm just saying it's an interesting interesting take. Um, it's actually much more appropriate in the case of the Boers because of uh, the burnt and scorched earth policies. So that is actually a far more accurate term to be using. Yeah, I think that's that's a great point. Uh, the, again, over thirty thousand uh, properties, thirty thousand properties burnt down. Um, like, is it a holocaust? Yes. Is there fire being used to destroy the civilian population? Absolutely. Um, so again, like the conditions of the camps were um, atrocious. Uh, the British hadn't prepared. Um, if we if we look at how the British were even treating uh, their own soldiers, uh, in many cases, like men didn't have enough rations. Uh, they weren't. Uh, they didn't inoculate any of the sol the British soldiers against typhoid. Uh, lots of British soldiers died uh, from typhoid themselves. So uh, in in some way, uh, some of the the terrible actions that happened in Britain was that Britain did to. South Africa was just a uh, mismanagement in some way, in a very small way. So just looking at the book here, it says here 32,000 farmhouses, uh, roughly 20 villages, and a total of um, around 17% of the total Boer population was actually liquidated there. So that was, at the time, it was about a quarter million people. Um, so 17% of that. So it's a significant number. Yes. Yes, and uh, again, the Boer republics, these weren't uh, ancient republics that had a thousand years of history like Rome uh, that, that had like been able to build very beautiful um, rock rock houses stone houses uh, the, the Boers were uh, the Boers had spent a lot of blood sweat and tears on developing their republics and then like, like you mentioned 32,000 properties destroyed um, it's very, very difficult to to build up from that and, and worse than that is actually the, the number of women and children um, that passed away uh, the official report uh, that we have uh, from uh, the genocide of the Boers is that um, 27,000 women and children perished in the camps. Now, um, th this dramatically shaped the future of South Africa. Um, there's lots of speculation about what would have happened if there were no camps and uh, the Boer women and children didn't perish in the large numbers that they did. Um, there are revisionists who put the number as high as 38,000. Um, yesterday, I found out about Rudy Rousseau, uh, unfortunately, only yesterday, so I wasn't able to get him on for the stream today, but I'm sure we'll have him on in the future. But um, this certainly changed um, South African history for the worse. So, um, guys, what do you think about the projection of numbers? Like, how big do you think the Boer population would be today if there, wasn't a, if there hadn't been an Anglo-Boer war? Probably quite easily triple, I would say. It's difficult to, to make exact uh, guesses here without doing a bit of real digging into the numbers and projections here, but more than likely probably around triple, I would think. What's your take on that? What do you yeah. think? Uh, yeah, so um, I've heard like numbers of like uh, 25 million to 30 million birds would uh, uh, be alive today uh, had, had the genocide not taken place. And of course, like uh, if there were 25,000 Boers alive today, oh, sorry, 25 million Boers or 30 million Boers alive today, uh, just politically things would have been so different. Also, the Boer republics would never, never have fallen, um, probably, if 
if the women and children were not put into the camps. Yeah, very interesting take. I think you're probably quite right with that. Um, <laughs> I think the present-day South African situation would be completely different as well. Very, very much so. Um, demographics, as we know, are destiny. And I think uh, with a huge increase in in standard white population, is particularly Boers, um, the undermining and the overthrowing and the, the complete change uh, over to black communist dictatorship would have been a hell of a lot more difficult to achieve. I think they would have encountered a whole lot more of more resistance. But then again, it didn't take a whole lot of people uh, to do the undermining, which was successful enough with a small team of uh, small team of people. So, yeah, I still think at the end of the day there would have been a whole lot more resistance, which would have made the entire operation far more difficult, um, as well as most probably prolonged, which yeah. in turn could have woken up a lot more people, you know, in time. Well, uh, I, unfortunately, like uh, Bruegel's mic wasn't working uh, because I was actually asking him to speak about the, the eight Lunders and uh, maybe Bruegel can uh, join us for another stream to tell us about the eight Lunders. But uh, when I was reading about the Transvaal, it seemed like in the city areas, there almost were no Boers. Uh, the, the people who were in the cities were uh, pretty much all foreigners. Like the, the only Boers that you had in the Transvaal cities um, after the discovery of gold were, were officials uh, like judges, uh, policemen, um, stuff like that, uh, lawyers, attorneys, uh, maybe some professional class. And uh, then you had Boers coming from their farms, bringing produce to the markets. So uh, in, in a place like Johannesburg, there, there almost were no Boers. It was just like foreigners. So you, you had this alien elite setting up uh, their system in the Transvaal. And uh, the, the Boers were very worried about this in the Transvaal. They were like, what are we going to do? These people are growing in influence in power and uh, they've got enough money to pay off the British Empire to uh, make sure that they they get uh, voting rights for example and actually this is an interesting point in the book the way the British were trying to frame the Boers before the invasion is they were saying that the Boers were being unjust in not giving voting rights to the Aidlanders and the Boers the Boers had an agreement that for 14 years an Aidlander could work in the Transvaal but then they needed to leave and then Paul Kruger uh, changed. He said like uh, they would give voting rights to the Aidlanders. I think he, he changed it to nine years. Uh, the British said no. He changed it, I believe, to like seven years. And the British said no. He, he reduced it further and said after five years of an Aidlander residing in the Transvaal, they will be able to vote. So the thing is, um, Paul Kruger was actually trying to, to talk. He was trying to uh, negotiate for a peace. But the British uh, were, were just uh, basically biding time to to bring their ships over from their colonies. Do you mind if I interject quickly? Yeah, go ahead. Can you hear me a little bit better? Oh, Bruegel, you're perfect. So uh, if you want to give us your take about the Aidlanders, like, please go ahead. Well, I just want to just want to add in, you know, we must always look at the Sands River Convention, okay? Because these were some of the points that were brought up at the end of the war of the reasoning why the British launched their war against us. Um, okay, so obviously I'm going to just read out the seven points for the Sand River Convention of 1852 signed on the 17th of January. The British government uh, guarantees uh, and grants the immigrant farmers across the Vol River to uh, the right to govern themselves accordingly, according to their own laws, free of any and all British interference that the British government wishes and the British government wishes to promote peace, free trade and freely inter friendly intercourse with the new country. It's strange that when you just go examine that uh, word, who were they to give us a country? We, we earned this country to begin with. And you must remember, just as you brought up with the, with the propaganda, they, you must remember, we were dealing with a super em, uh, empire. Okay? They were the world's dominant nation. Okay? They controlled all the seas. They, they controlled just about everything. You know? 
when you go and when you go look at the propaganda aspect, they were some of the first to start using it in actual movies and some of the first silent movies, how they uh, portrayed the Boers as uh, barbarians, technically. Um, you know, the, the British are. Let me just say the crown because it's best you put it that way because it's saying it's nice saying it's all Kish, Kishna's fault, but at the end of the day, he he had to talk to the Privy Council who made the rules, and then the Privy Council talked to the Queen. That's the way that system worked. So, point two. Just, just, uh, just to interject real quick as well. Um, the entire operation here was a Rothschild operation to get the hands on gold and whatever other mineral resources I expect, you know, uh, that happened to be available, including the diamonds. Is, so, it's it's a case of the Queen true. being subservient, <laughs> subservient to, to them as well. That's partly true, but the Queen still had the final say over the actual military. You must always remember that. Yes, um, if, you, if, you, if you ever try to look for the history of the, the special people in England, the old book, you can see where they started uh, sneaking in. And then you can go look yeah. at them pushing forward Zion and the Jewish state, Oops, my bad, way early, early in the, late, late in the mid-1800s, they were busy trying to push for this. So I'm just going to carry on reading the, sec the, the seven points of this river, the Sand River Convention. Point two, okay. British uh, disclaims any and all alliances with colored nations to the north of the Val River. Okay. Point three, no slavery to be practiced in the country to the north of the Vol River. Okay, and we all know, that, well, if people don't know, when um, when uh, slaves were released, okay, when they finally had emancipation in, in the, the Cape of Good Hope, we already had moved up into the north, okay? If we wanted to free the slave, you must remember, it wasn't a proper slave as you think, okay? They had to be fed, they had to be housed. So it's not like us slaves nowadays. We, we, we are the actual slaves nowadays, okay? If you wanted to free your slaves, you had to go all the way to England to get your um, your coupon and your rebate because they did offer a buyback technically, and that was impractical for just about everyone who owned a slave prior. Point uh, point four: ammunition and arms crossing over the border from the south of the Vol River shall require a certificate from the British magistrate, and that no arms or munitions sh uh, be supplied to the natives by either the British or by the people of the new country. Point five, criminals will be exchanged between the British and the new country, and that summons for witnesses for both sides of the river be backed up by the magistrates at both sides of the river. Point six, it is, ag it is agreed that uh, certificates of marriage be recognized on both sides of the river. Point seven, it is agreed that any and all people now residing in British land, but being in possession of land in the new country, shall have free right to sell their property and move freely over the Baal River. That number, point seven was one of the sticking points after the actual war. And and that fell for black people, for um, the special people, jury, okay, um, for Indians, uh, for just about everyone. You must remember the British, the British imported the Indians, they imported these Juden, they imported just about everything into this country. Um, when they were busy building the railways, okay, the railway, the railway lines, that's where a lot of towns actually got set up. So if you ever go drive around South Africa, you'll notice a lot of yeah. locations next to, and especially the older locations are always next to the actual train stations, or train lines, rather. Okay, you can, advise, can carry on. I just wanted to read those seven points, because those seven points were the crux of the breaking of the treaty, and that's what really caused, that, that was the legal, uh, legalese that actually they used for the justification of the Second World War. We must always remember that. Yes, it was about minerals, 
it was about subverting because you must remember at the same time Britain was busy playing the big the great game in, in um, Europe in Europe technically. Look how many nations they sided against each other. You know, for, for you must understand Britain has if Britain has been at war for nearly four hundred years in a perpetual state of warfare. Out of those four hundred years, there are around sixty years of peace. What does that yes. say to you? That's you know what I mean. That's scary when you think about it. And that's the exact modus operandi that America has taken after it was given the man uh, the Monroe doc doctrine. You know what I mean? We are dealing with some sneaky little snakes here, and these snakes are in the long grass, and we need to weed them out fast because you can all look around what's going on. What's going on is going to end up in our destruction very very fast because none of our leaders will ever speak up for us. They all sold us down the river a long time ago for their lovely little cash checks and their lovely little houses and all that rubbish. You know, we've got very little proper-minded people actually speaking about the truth. And what about the white people? Should we not all have our own homelands? Do we not deserve any of this? Or are we such savages that we don't deserve anything? This plan against us whites, the Caucasian race, is one of the most evilest things. It will be written in history books in the next 50 years, you know, 100 years to come. Of what these people have actually done to us, how they've subverted our cultures, brought you know, go look at every single Protestant nation. Are they actually even Protestant anymore? You know what I mean? They're all destroyed technically. They've been destroyed from the inside out. This is the major issue yeah. we're dealing with. Yeah, I, I think you're right. So like, there isn't a, a Protestant nation anymore. Like, what you, what you do have is you've got Protestant communities that uh, exclude them themselves from civilization. So um, you you've got. Um, some groups that just move away from the cities, they just live in the countryside. So that's really all that's left of Protestantism. Um, you've got some evangelicals, but their religion has been greatly corrupted. So um, I think the point they bring up uh, about the different approach of the Boers and the Brits relating to race is very important. So uh, for the Boers, they, they didn't want to mix. They didn't want uh, their daughters and sons marrying people of other races. Um, uh, but the British were absolutely fine for it and they were work working towards it by uh, doing all these importations. I fully agree with that. And when we look at the British, okay, let's go back to the 1600s, okay? There was a secret invasion of Britain, okay, by, by the House of Orange. In the, uh, I think it was a 16, around 1660 to 1670. There was actual invasion of England by the House of Orange. It is, when you just look at all of this, it's just like, what the, what the fuck's actually going on? You know what I mean? I don't mean to use such horrible language, but that's just the reality of it. It's like, what's actually going on here? Who are these subverters that come into our nations straight away try to get usury implemented and then start start sapping the resources out of all our countries you know i feel for the british because when you go look at that nation it's not white anymore it's never going to be white the next hundred years of it not even the next hundred years the next 20 years good luck to them yeah. you know what i mean yeah. good luck to yeah. them. Professor David Coleman from, uh, I believe it's Oxford University, he's a, a statistician, he works with demographics, and he has just looked at the numbers and done the projection, and uh, Britain by uh, 2060, uh, somewhere uh, by 2060, 2066, uh, Britain is supposed to be uh, minority white. So uh, Br Britain has chosen policies that, have, that are leading it to the same situation as South Africa finds itself in now, today. I fully agree. I'm just trying to find a lovely little... Um uh, letter that was written to um, Karl Marx, okay, by Drach Levy, okay, in the June of the first, nineteen twenty-eight. The the jury, okay, the special people, as a whole, will be its own messiah. It will attain world domination by the dissolution of other races, by the abolishment of frontiers and the annihilation of monarchies, and by the establishment of a world republic in which the jury 
will be everywhere uh, will everywhere exercise its privilege of citizenship. In this new world order, the children of Israel will be furnished will, will furnish all the leaders without encountering any opposition. The governments of the different people forming the world's republic will fall without difficulty into the hands of the jury. It will then be possible for the special rulers to abolish private property and everywhere to make use of the resources of the state. Thus will the promise of the Talmud be fulfilled, in which it is said that when the, when the, Messiah, uh, the, you know, the Messianic times is come, the Jews will have all the property of the whole world in their hands. Think about that. That's happened right away. They, they subverted America. They subverted, firstly, they subverted uh, the Dutch. They then subverted, they went over to, and subverted the British. They then subverted America, used America, okay, pinned it against itself in the North versus East War, okay, the, the great civil war in America. If anyone goes and looks at the Southern uh, Confederacy, go look at who the leaders were. And I think you're going to find some special things you, you never knew about. Then also understand the bankers, those internationalists, they were up in the north. So once again, you have this Hagelian dialect where they cause both sides, opposing sides, to now battle, yes. battle, battle themselves out. Yes, uh, that is a stunning quote, and I'd, I'd love if you could send that to me. So uh, I, I, in my study of history, I've certainly thought that uh, the undermining of the monarchies in Europe was really like the beginning of the undoing. Uh, because uh, if you had princes of the nations, kings of the nations, they first of all represented the religion of their area and they represented the people of their area. And as soon as you remove that, well, uh, now you're you're open to like a, a more internationalist ruler or a, a more internationalist system of rulers. So, um, yeah, th th that, is a, that is a very interesting quote. I concur 100%. And when we go look at this movement, it started with Freemasonry, which is a Talmudic system, okay? Note the way it interweaves a lot of their magical ways. Then you have the Illuminati um, from, um, from Adam Weishaupt, okay? That order didn't really succeed that much, but some of the points it made were a part of this. You know, when people go say Illuminati, it's, yeah, they, they died out quite some time ago. It, this is a Zionist world order that we're under. I wish to read out to one more thing. The world order, this is a, from a newspaper from the New York Times, printed October the 6th, 1940. The new world order pledged, pledged to the Jews, okay? Arthur Greenwood, Note the surname, Greenwood, okay, of the British War Cabinet sends messages of assurance here. Writing of the wrong scene, okay. English rabbi delivers to Dr. S.S. Wise new statements on the question of war. In the first public declaration on the Jewish question, since the outbreak of the war, Arthur Greenwood, member without portfolio in the British War uh, Cabinet, assured the Jews of the United States that when victory was achieved, an effort would be made to found a new world order based on the ideals of justice and peace. Okay, remember, that's the Talmudic practice, and it's one way for, uh, don't do as I say, that, you know, what's coming now, you're going to see the lower laws come into, into being. Okay, they've been pushing this, there's going to be a whole bunch yes. of new anti-Semitic <laughs> laws being pushed. If you go watch the UN speeches, you can go watch them. Okay. We've, we've, we've got them here. We've got a whole bunch that just came in now. Anti-Semitic laws, I mean. Okay, so I'm going to carry on reading this lovely long uh, piece, okay? Mr. Greenwood, who is the uh, deputy leader of the British Labour Party, declared that the New World Order, the conscious of civilised humanity, would demand that the wrongs suffered, the wrongs suffered by the Jewish people in, the, in so many countries should be righted. 
Okay, he added that after the war, the opportunity would be given to the Jews everywhere to make a distinctive and constructive contribution in the rebuilding of the world. Uh, we are living in that usury world. It, it must come down. We must take it, break it brick by brick as far as I'm concerned. The message was delivered last week by Dr. Stephen S. Wise, chairman of the executive committee of the World Jewish Congress. Uh, just say FYI, I was busy reading um, Israel law, uh, Israeli laws, okay? You need to go look at the right of... Um, the right of return, you will see the World Jewish Congress is actually, it's in their laws. So I don't know how they can be in any other country besides Israel and any other country allows them into their borders, seeing that this is a massive intelligence operation, a massive one, one to subvert everyone's nations. And they use many front groups and many people. They'll buy off your leaders as far as they're concerned. Okay, I'm carrying on. Yeah, reading. Yeah, yeah, what you're saying is uh, certainly true. Like if we look at uh, how, uh, if someone reads Kevin MacDonald's uh, great series on uh, the culture of critique, uh, he mentions how uh, in history, Jews have always moved to, to the urban areas and always attached themselves to like the monarchs or the princes or the courts or the banks, like all the institutions that are very important for power. And uh, it's very interesting to see that in South Africa, exactly the same thing has happened. Like um, in 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 banking, in mining, in the monopoly of uh, the dynamite industry, in the liquor industry, and I'm speaking about specifically the period um, of the, the the Boer republics, uh, especially in Transvaal. Sorry, I, I interrupted you. You can go on. We can go even look at after during the so-called apartheid. Okay, they were in every single industry. Right now, currently, they're in the property industry big time. Okay, if you go look currently, okay, look at the secession movements that are currently happening in South Africa. Okay. The way these Jews, I'm going to just say, call them out for what they are, okay? Lucky I'm not giving them worse names, because I can easily do that. They've got every single side covered. Their, their leader is in the Cape, their leader is in the Cape Secession Party. When we go look at the ULA by Hendrik Marx, okay, that surname should just ring a bell, Marx. These people cover their bases like you would not believe. When we go look at the, the Democratic Alliance, they're snug way up all in there, okay? When you go look at the ANC, they're right there. When you go look at the EFF, they're funding the EFF. They are literally funding. Their head lawyer of the Jewish Board of Deputies is the same lawyer for the EFF. So it's, it's okay for them to go say, kill the Boer, kill the white. But oh, you, you go say, kill the... You know, it's yeah. just the hypocrisy. It's the, the hypocrisy. And they, they seem to not understand, you know, maybe because it's their genetics and they're so full of mental issues... That they, could, that they don't seem to understand the ramifications when you go and you allow one group to say this and then you go fund their law teams to get them off. So they never ever tried properly. You know, when we go look at the judiciary in South Africa, it's totally bought off. We're lucky yeah. things even run correctly in this country. I'm not joking. But yeah, certainly, like, this is a topic that I would love to discuss with you, especially because you, you're so knowledgeable on the topic. But uh, there is this problem that uh, th that was in the, the Transvaal Republic, and it still continues to today. So uh, it, it's a problem that hasn't disappeared. So uh, if you look at political history in South Africa, uh, this group has been uh, very important in setting up socialist groups, trade unions, the Communist Party, stocking the MP, yes. stocking the DA, stocking the ANC, stocking, stocking, stocking. And um, again, this this is not good for the people who live in South Africa. And I, I'd like to uh, speak about it, but not today, if that's all right. Just if we could focus on the, the Boer Republics in this period of history. This, I think, over, you know, I'm saying forget the Boer fucking shit. That's already happened. We need to talk about fucking the real shit that's going on. And they control every single nation. There's a handful that they don't control. 
and we need to we need to fight these motherfuckers tooth and nail. And if it means going after our leaders, our so-called leaders, we have to do that. I'm not joking on that stuff because we are we are heading down the path of doom. You think the Boer genocide was bad? Wait until you see what's coming now with the depopulation yes. of seven million people on this planet. You know, or to fulfill their Talmudic dreams. Technically, that's all they want to do. You know, I will go back to the Boer War, but uh, bro, this issue, it, it's over. It's it's more than the Boer War. This is an old precursor sure. to what was coming. You know what I mean? This was a precursor. Sure, sure. We allowed these people in this country, and they they subverted us tooth and nail, tooth and yes. nail. Yes, I, I'm living in Poland now, and in Poland it, it's the same thing. If you speak to uh, Polish people, uh, they see what's happening in their country. Um, Anyway, guys, uh, I think probably we're going to uh, wrap things up. Um, maybe we could uh, focus just like on a, on maybe the conclusion of today's talk with a Boer strategy. Um, do you think like the Boers could have done something differently? Like s some people mentioned that uh, if the Boers had, for example, uh, deployed to Natal, taken the harbors in Natal and Cape Town, uh, they may have like, actually forced the British uh, to to try and land somewhere else, and it would have been uh, very difficult to do so. Well, the question is, why did we? Uh I personally think we had some subverters in our camp, and um, one being yeah. Paul Kruger. Paul Kruger was so snuggly with these people. I don't, I don't, and plus he has Azikanazi DNA, so um, as far as I'm concerned, he's one of them. That's as far as I'm, I'm really concerned. He's one of them, as far as I'm concerned. And everyone can say, no, he's a great man. I look at him and I say, for that period, you look how fat he was. Okay, you go look at all the other generals. Go look at all the other Boer generals, and they were not that pompous. They were not big like that. They didn't eat that well. You know, they ate their meals, but they weren't fat like that. You know what I mean? It shows there was something else going on there. When you go look at, you know, he, and he didn't even stay and fight. That's what I find hilarious. For such a patriot, he ran to Sweden. And he lived comfortably in Sweden, as, as the family does right now, currently in Sweden. You know, that's what I find hilarious about Paul Kruger, the Azekanazi, 30% Azekanazi. Well, it would be very interesting to do a deep dive on Paul Kruger. Kruger. There are some things that I do like about uh, Paul Kruger, but yeah, I also have my questions uh, about the man. Um, we have to take certain things with a pinch of salt, I feel, bro. I really feel, because some of the books I've got with him sitting at the, the creation of the Hebrew Council, uh, con Congress in Johannesburg and in, in Pretoria, now, I don't believe bro, he was snug up with them. When you go look at like, some of the, um, there was a Brendan Bernardo, one of the Rand Lords, he donated two massive marble statues for his house in, in uh, Pretoria. You know, at the time, his house was one of the most nicest houses in Pretoria. So, I, you know what I mean? Mm, I doubt this dude. Um, and uh, people can hate me, South Africans can hate me, but I'm not stupid to, to the cause of what's going on here. You know, we have a lot of uh, cryptos amongst us. That's the problem. These people that sneak in, they, they come into our fold, they act like us, they nearly look like us, but all their real motives are so different from ours. Sorry, my brother. Okay, so, no, 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 it's fantastic to have you on, uh, Bruno. I, I, you know, in a free world, uh, we could just say whatever we wanted, but uh, unfortunately, we're on this platform here. Uh, William and Tor, uh, do you guys have any, like, concluding thoughts on the genocide of the Boers? Yeah, I don't, I don't looking back, I mean, I, you asked what, what the Boers could have done differently. Should they have uh, taken the tell, stopped the landing? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a possibility. It's neither here nor there. Um, I think you guys were talking earlier about numbers, and there was a study done by uh, University of Stellenbosch where they pinned the numbers at around 25 million. So if that's, uh, uh, yeah, 20, 20 sec, uh, 20, yeah, about 25 million. So that takes into consideration uh, the Second World War, 
as well as World War One, World War Two. Um, yeah, I think South African politics or South African South Africa as a whole would be very different. Okay, uh, folks, thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, it was really good to speak about this topic. Uh, it is important that we understand our history. It's important to understand that uh, things could have been very different had uh, our, our elites and Britain's elites not sold out their own people for the sake of the money changes. Good night, everyone. Good night. Yeah, thanks, Brad. Thanks, all. Good night. Till next time. Let's have a